0: Good morning, family. Good morning. It's a great privilege to be out the front here, on the other side of the pedestal, and um, encouraging you in a different way. So it's great. Okay, chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidium, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and came and camped in the wilderness. And there is and Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And then, now, then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be in me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now, just taking a walk over to Peter two, to Peter. Oh, sorry, one, Peter, two one to twelve, therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisy, hypocrisy, excuse me, and envy and all and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, and by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men by choice, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious Cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you. You believe is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this, and to this doom they were all appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a a people whose God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are in the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behaviour excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, that they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation.
1: Amen. Well, good morning again. I hope you've got your Bible open at 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, the booklet also has an outline again for this second talk, Church Under Fire, New Community. And we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses particularly 4 through 12. Let me pray again as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your great mercy... You have not only given us new birth into a living hope, but you have called us to belong amongst your people. You have given us a new community built on the foundation of your son and being gathered from every tribe and people and nation and language around the world. And so I pray this morning as we reflect on that grace of belonging among your people that you would encourage us and build us up and strengthen us to live as your people in the world. And we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, there seems to be something about the human condition, doesn't there? That we we love to build big things. As far back as you want to go in human history, you can trace the story of human beings trying to build big things. We could start with the Tower of Babel, of course, but that one got destroyed and so there's no record of it left. So if we go back as far as we can, the very earliest human building projects of which we still have some kind of record. We can go back to the Great Pyramid of Giza, built somewhere around 2,560 BC. That's more than 4,500 years ago and still standing. The tallest building of its day, 146 metres high, about half of Point Tower. Quite impressive. Come forward a couple of millennia, And it was topped only then in 1311 AD by Lincoln Cathedral in the UK. Perhaps some people have been there. 1311 it was completed, 160 metres tall. You have to come forward another several hundred years before that was topped substantially in 1889 by the Eiffel Tower at 300 metres in height. And from there, it really ramps up. 1975, I'm just picking up the highlights package here, the CN Tower in Toronto, perhaps you've been there? 500, or oh, some Canadians here. I'll look at that. You're about to be topped. But in 1975, top of the world, at 553 metres. Very impressive stuff. Until 2010, there's been a few in between. But 2010, the latest contender, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Anyone know how tall it is? 829 metres high and 80 centimetres just astounding isn't it Uh, and I'm sure there are plans afoot already uh, for a bigger and better and taller building There's, there's something about the human condition we we love to build big things we want to be part of some great building project and it's been that way as far back as you go in human history and it remains that way still today But it's, of course, not just in the competition to build the biggest, the tallest tower, is it? In a whole host of other ways, we want to be where the action is. We want to be part of a big building project. We want to throw our lot in with something significant. We want to be caught up in something that matters, something you can point at and say, yes, wow, look what we did. And the problem for us in the church is that, at least in the world's eyes, and perhaps sometimes even to us, the church so often seems so small and so weak and so insignificant and I'm not just talking about the church buildings of course Uh, you feel it in the conversations you have at work or at uni and at school don't you where Christian perspectives uh, say recently on same-sex marriage are treated as outdated and irrelevant you feel it in another way when your kid's soccer team schedules an extra game on Sunday morning you've had this happen to you? Without even so much as a thought that people might have something on on Sunday morning because it's just not relevant anymore. You feel it when you're at a dinner party and you say you're part of a Presbyterian church. Perhaps you're bold, you work up the courage, uh, and and the response is Presby, what? Because nobody's heard of it. You feel it when Christian voices on Q&A on the ABC are marginalised and undermined and ridiculed. You feel it when you go perhaps to the city for a cricket match or a concert and you're overwhelmed by the sheer noise and energy and power in the stadium of 100,000 people cheering and yelling and screaming. And then you go to church the next morning and you're underwhelmed by the sound of, what, a couple of hundred at best singing praise to God. In so many ways, compared to all of the big exciting stuff out there, what's happening in here in the church can feel small and weak and insignificant and the temptation when you feel like that i don't know if you feel it i certainly have from time to time the temptation is to opt out of the church of course maybe we don't opt out completely we still turn up on sunday we sign up for the obligatory rosters we might even be part of a small group But if we're honest with ourselves, very often when we feel that church is small and weak and insignificant, it doesn't get the best of our attention. Uh, There are more exciting things happening in our work and in our family life. And so when life is busy and something has to go, sometimes church is it. Despite what we might like to tell ourselves, the trends of how we spend our money and our time reveal that the church for us sometimes has become a low priority. The mission of the church is not our passion. Well, if we feel those temptations from time to time, we're not alone. The Apostle Peter, as we've seen this morning, is writing to a bunch of churches who are in exile. That's what Peter calls them in chapter 1, verse 1. Most likely Christians, as we saw, who've been expelled from Rome by the Emperor Claudius, relocated in the Roman colonies in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, what we call modern Turkey. Churches who were well away from the centres of power and influence and prestige in the Roman Empire. They were not in Jerusalem, many of them Jews, Jewish Christians, but not in Jerusalem, these people, with its glorious temple. But nor were they in Rome, with its powerful connections to the emperor, they were in far flung backwater provinces in Turkey. No doubt these exiles were feeling small and weak and insignificant, especially since the church that they were part of in those provinces was also under fire, a small, marginalised, persecuted minority, facing pressure because of their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. No doubt they felt the temptation of opting out of the church, of giving their time and their money and their attention to things that were more exciting and more significant and more powerful and more socially acceptable than the church. But God had good news for them through his servant, the Apostle Peter, in this letter. And since we may struggle sometimes with the same kinds of temptations, God has the same good news for us too. And the good news here is this, that even though the church may look and feel small and weak and insignificant, the church is, in reality, in actual fact, the single, largest, most significant, most powerful project the world has ever seen. So I want to encourage you this morning with two reasons from 1 Peter, not only to stick with God's church, but to throw yourself in to the church's life and mission. And then I want to explore some of what what it might look like to do just that. The first reason to throw yourself into the church's mission is that the church is God's temple. God's great building project where God has chosen to live in his world. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, Peter's speaking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church, Peter says, is a spiritual house. It's a temple. It's God's temple. It's where God lives in his world. Of course, God fills the universe. The heavens and even the highest heavens can't contain him and yet he is specially present amongst his people in his spiritual temple. All the way through the Bible, in fact, God has been in the business of having temples built as a place where he lives among his people, hasn't he? So that he can bless them and so that they can become a blessing to the nations round about. If you cast your mind all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, the Garden of Eden even is a kind of spiritual house, a kind of temple. Uh, there's gold and precious stones in the ground. There are rivers flowing from Eden. The work of Adam is described in priestly terms. And we're meant to understand when we read Genesis chapter 2 carefully that we're in a sacred space in Eden, a place where God dwells with Adam and Eve, where he walks through the garden and is present with his people. It's a kind of spiritual house, a kind of temple. And then if you come forward through the biblical story, you come to the tabernacle that God commanded his people under Moses to build when they're in the wilderness, a kind of temple. A holy place where priests offered sacrifices so that God could live among his people. And when you get to the end of the book of Exodus, the glory of God descends and fills the, temp- the tabernacle. Or you come further forward and you come to Jerusalem and the temple that Solomon built, a holy place where God lived among his people and heard their prayers and blessed them so that they could be a blessing to the nations. Uh, all the way through the Bible, uh, God's consistent plan has been to live with his people in sacred space, in a temple. But now, Peter says, now that Jesus has come, now that God's Holy Spirit has been poured out, the temple where God lives with his people is not a stone structure in Jerusalem. It's not a tent in the wilderness. It's you, you Christian believers in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia and Asia. God's temple is no longer a physical structure made of lifeless stones but a living, breathing human community. Look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But notice, unlike the building projects that I mentioned at the start, notice who is doing the building here. Look at verse 5 again. You yourselves, Peter says, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter speaks in a passive voice. He's speaking not about what believers are doing to build God's temple, but about what God is doing to build them as his temple. Yes, you've come to Jesus. Yes, you made a decision to trust in him, but you did that because God picked you. He plucked you out of darkness and built you into the wall in his temple. This whole church thing is God's project, God's work of building, first and foremost, rather than ours. And since it's God's building project in which we are being included, it's no surprise that God is building his temple according to his specifications. And here's the key. He's building his church on a rejected cornerstone. Did you notice that? Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And again, verse 7, quoting from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone in a building project, of course, is the first stone you lay When you're building, it's the stone that sets the pattern for the rest. And Peter here is talking about Jesus as the cornerstone. Jesus who was chosen by God, precious to him. A living stone, living because he was raised from the dead. Jesus the cornerstone who sets the pattern for the rest of the house. Jesus who was rejected. God is building his church and he's building it his way and the precious living cornerstone that is chosen to lay has been rejected by the builders betrayed and despised and mocked and spat on and crucified small and weak and insignificant and if he's the cornerstone that sets the pattern for the rest what does that tell you about the destiny of the church God is also building his church, you exiles in Pontus and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia and Port Macquarie. God is also building his church out of a rejected people. People who have been cast out of Rome, who are far from the centres of power. People who are exiles in the world. People who in the world's eyes are small and weak and insignificant. This is how God has always worked. He built his church back in the Old Testament where not in the centres of power in egypt under pharaoh but in the middle of the wilderness on the way to the promised land he built this church not in the palace of the kings and princes but among the exiles by the rivers of babylon he built this church not in the roman capital but in the far in far-flung palestine among a despised race through a rejected messiah by a shameful death Yes, you're not in Rome. Yes, you're not in Jerusalem. Yes, you're not in the centres of power of Australian society. You're exiles, Peter says. And so you might feel small and weak and insignificant because in the world's eyes you are. (laughs) But not in God's eyes. You might wish that you were living and working where the action is because in the world's eyes you're irrelevant or a nuisance or worse. But the truth is, the living God of all creation is building his church. He's (laughs) constructing his temple. He's erecting the most magnificent, glorious structure the world has ever seen right here in your midst, right under your nose, even though the world can't see it. He's doing it in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. He's doing it in Coffs Harbour and Nambucca and Warhope and Taree and Foster and Port Macquarie but there's more of course God is not only building his new temple where he dwells with his people in the world there's also a second reason to throw yourself into the life and the mission of the church because the church is not only God's temple it's also God's new humanity where God is making people new. Peter picks it up in verse 9, speaking to these Christian believers, these exiles. You are a chosen race, he says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you hear the echoes in that language? The echoes from the first passage that was read to us from Exodus chapter 19? This is all Israel language. You are a chosen race. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. You are God's treasured possession. This is what God declared to his people Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. He picked them up and rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them out from under the yoke of Pharaoh with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. He brought them to himself at Mount Sinai. He declared to them, I have rescued you. And he designated them his chosen people. The whole earth is mine, God said. But you, Israel, are my treasured possession. And now, Peter says, you exiles in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia you who have come to Jesus the living stone you are heirs of those promises you take up that role you are Israel renewed and so you are God's chosen people his treasured possession but perhaps behind that you can also hear some other echoes echoes not just of Israel but echoes of Adam way back in the garden Adam is a, a holy person, chosen by God as his representative in the world, made in God's image. Adam is a king called to exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, uh, the first king in God's kingdom. Adam is a priest called to stand in God's presence in the garden, temple of Eden. Adam as God's t- treasured possession, the crowning glory of God's creative work. And now Peter says, You exiles in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, you who have come to Jesus, the living stone, you are heirs of those promises as well. You take up that role. You see, the church is not only Israel renewed, it's humanity renewed. If you listen to the news reports, you'll hear that the media would have you believe that the church is at best a sect that should have little or nothing to do with mainstream society. A club that you might opt into if you have religious inclinations. A niche group for those with particular spiritual needs. But all of that couldn't be further from the truth because what Peter tells us here is that in the church, God is rebuilding the human race from the ground up. The church is God's renewed humanity. Uh, Of course, it's not that the people in the church are better people, as if Christians are somehow superhuman. uh, You know that well. And I'm not talking about the person next to you. (laughs) No, you were in darkness until God called you into his light, verse 9. You were lost in sin, deserving God's judgment, until God showed you his mercy. Uh, That's true for all of us, isn't it? For you and for me. The church is God's new humanity not because of anything special about the people in the church but because of God's wonderful mercy by which he has rescued us. Like he rescued Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm out from under Pharaoh's thumb he's rescued us out from under the rule of sin and death and brought us out to himself forgiving our sin qualifying us to stand again in his presence so that we like Peter says in verse 5 can be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, what's the church? The church is the community of people where people who are distorted and corrupted and broken and downtrodden because of sin, their own sin and the sin of others, the church is the community where those people, by God's grace, by being connected to Jesus the living stone, start to become fully human again. Start to become a kingdom of priests who can stand in God's presence and offer sacrifices to God. You might have heard about what happened in Charlestown, South Carolina on the 17th of June 2015. Uh, There was an African American church there meeting for Bible study. Nine people or so in the room when a young white supremacist, a guy with a severe mental illness, walked into the room, spent an hour in their Bible study with a gun concealed under his jacket and then opened fire at the end and killed nine of them. You might have heard about that because that made the Sydney Morning Herald and The Australian and Seven News. What you might not have heard about is that within a month at the initial hearing for this young man, the families of those who had had their loved ones killed stood up in the courtroom one by one and offered him God's forgiveness. They didn't get reported, but that is astounding, isn't it? Those are people with no reason to forgive. People whose families have long histories of being slaves, of being mistreated and downtrodden, People with every reason to want revenge. And yet people who are choosing to forgive. A young man who killed those they love. Why? Well, because that's what God is doing in his church. (laughs) He's picking up people who are broken and downtrodden and corrupted and distorted because of their sin. And he's making them new. He's making them like Jesus. He's taking twisted, broken people like you and me and making us into the kind of people we're meant to be. And this temple building, this life-renewing work that God is doing, it'll never be glamorous in the eyes of the world. It's not going to be picked up and reported on very often on 7 News or on the Sydney Morning Herald or in the Australian. And in fact, if it starts to look glamorous in the eyes of the world there's a good chance that we've started to build on some foundation other than the one that God has laid in Jesus because he was the rejected cornerstone but it's work that is right in the center of what the one true and living God is doing in his world he's building his spiritual house he's making his people new so when you speak about Jesus at work or at school and you get politely ignored or perhaps ridiculed when you hold on to God's teaching and his word about marriage and you get told that's out of date when you spend yourself for 10 snotty snotty-nosed kids on on Sunday morning in Sunday school I don't know if anyone does that (laughs) instead of sleeping in on Sunday morning when you give up your Friday nights to hang out with the youth group and play your part in teaching them God's word when you take time to visit the oldies from your church who are shut in and not able to make it on Sunday mornings anymore to encourage them and give them some of God's word and build them up in Christ, when you patiently use your gifts for God's service week in, week out, year in, year out, even when no one notices and no one applauds and there are no likes on Facebook and you just keep doing it anyway, I want to encourage you. Take heart. Chances are when that is the pattern of your life, you're doing something right. Chances are God is at work through you to build his spiritual, his spiritual house, to make his people new. Chances are, although what you're doing looks small and weak and insignificant in the eyes of the world, you are in reality, as Peter puts it here in verse 5, offering spiritual sacrifices that God loves. In Christ. You hear the message? Don't opt out. Throw yourself in. Because when you do that, you're not throwing yourself into some irrelevant social club or some niche interest group for people with particular spiritual needs. When you throw yourself into the life and the mission of the church, you are right in the middle of the action of what the one true and living God is doing in his world. You're joining the biggest building project the world has ever seen. Happening right under the noses of the world, even though most people don't recognise it. So what would it look like to throw yourself in? What is God's mission for his church? Well, it's simple really. God calls his church to declare his praises and to demonstrate how great he is. Have a look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Let's start with that. In our production and consumption-obsessed society, economic efficiency is something of a god, isn't it? Activities that don't have a measurable output, a bottom line that you can point to, and count in dollar terms seem to be a waste of time Uh, and in that kind of atmosphere gathering as we do as god's people on sunday morning to sing his praises can seem like an irrelevance the economist might ask what good is gathered worship at your church contributing to society well i can actually think of a number of goods that gathered worship contributes to society but that's actually not the point Because contributing to society, let's call it loving our neighbours, while it's vitally important, and we're going to talk more about that tomorrow, is still only the second most important thing in life. What did Jesus say when they asked him what the most important commandment is? Yes, he said, love your neighbour, but before that he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. We were created to worship God, to love God with all we are, to sing his praises. So at the heart of the church's mission in the world is to be a worshipping people, a people who proclaim God's excellencies in the midst of a watching world, who declare God's glory in a world that suppresses the truth about God. C.S. Lewis once wrote that the world is actually full of praise. We don't realise this a lot of the time, but I think he's right. Husbands praising their wives, sports fans praising their favourite teams, readers praising a good book, Watchers praising clever shows. Students praising their favourite school and university. Or perhaps not. Stamp collectors praising their favourite stamps. You know, There's praise all over the place once you start to listen for it. And God's purpose in building his church is to cover the world. To fill the earth with communities of his people who declare his praises. Who shout to the rooftops how great he is. And that's central to why God planted his church in Port Macquarie. So there'd be a community of people here, there, who sing his praise, who declare his excellencies. That's central to why God planted his church down the road in Nambucca and Foster and Taree. Central to why I joined a church plant a year ago in Hornsby. Because in planting churches all over the globe, God is filling his world with communities of people who declare his praise. Communities that might look small and weak and insignificant from the outside, but communities that are right at the centre of the action of what God is doing. But of course God didn't just redeem us to declare his excellencies in our gathered worship on Sunday mornings, he redeemed redeemed us to do it all the time, over coffee or lunch, at the sidelines of the sporting match, in our Facebook posts, in our offices, in our schools, in our hospitals in our contributions to public discussion in the media, wherever we get opportunity, we are people who have been redeemed to declare God's praises. We've been rescued from darkness into light. And that's worth singing about. Not just together on Sunday, but all over the place during the week. We've been rescued to declare God's praises and to call other people to find their true humanity in declaring his praises with us. A Christian author, John Piper, puts this well. This is in the, the, the very front of a book on world mission. Uh, and the first line in this book on world mission, he says, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. And you think, what, have I picked up the wrong book? This is a book on world mission. He says, no, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate not man he's got a point doesn't he when this age is over he continues and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of god missions will be no more it's a temporary necessity but worship abides forever you see when we tell the good news about jesus and call on people to repent of their sin and to trust in him we're really calling on them to stop giving the highest praise in their life to other things to stop praising idols and to start praising the living and true god if you go to a a cricket match at the scg or a footy match at the football stadium if you go to a concert the sheer energy and the power can be overwhelming can't they you come away kind of buzzing And when you compare it to church the next morning, it can feel like church is small and weak and insignificant. And so we've got to remember that church each week, as we sing God's praises, is in one sense choir practice for the real event that's still coming. Because when you read the book of Revelation, you see that God is in the process of assembling the biggest choir the world has ever known. A vast multitude from every tribe and people and nation and tongue. Countless millions John says as he looks at them in his his vision in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, who fall on their knees before the living God and declare his praise. Uh, And when we do that on Sunday mornings, though, there's only 150 of us, 200 of us at most, 50 in some churches, maybe 1,000 in another. We've got to remember we're part of the choir practice for that great choir of praise for which the world is destined But that's only part of the job, declaring God's praises. The other part is demonstrating God's goodness. And so Peter continues in verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What's God's strategy for displaying his glory in the world? It's not bigger buildings or flashier websites or glossier marketing, uh, although there may be a place for some of those things some of the time. Uh, That's not God's strategy. God's strategy, the real action in the spiritual battle, is the good lives of his people. And make no mistake, it is a spiritual battle. Did you hear what Peter said? Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You see, there's a lie about that says true humanity is found in self actualization in expressing yourself, in giving way to any and every desire. So in our society, to say no to any desire, no matter what it is, is to repress yourself and therefore to cause yourself damage. It's actually dangerous to repress your desires, according to the modern wisdom. And so those who advocate any kind of self-denial got to be silenced because what they say is evil but the truth is that sinful desires wage war against your soul they corrupt us don't they they distort us they make us less than fully human they bend us over and god has rescued you out of that darkness and he's brought you into his light to free you from that corruption to straighten you out, to help you stand tall, to make you fully human like Jesus. And so the church is called to live such good lives among those who don't yet know him as their Lord and Saviour that though they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You See, this has been God's design the whole way through. God's design for the mission of his church is that the world should look in from the outside And see the way the world, the the church lives and say, gee, the way they live in there, it's different from how we live out out here. Uh, That's how the nations were meant to look in on Israel. Uh, The nations were meant to look in on on Israel and say, the way they live in there in Israel, gathered around the temple in Jerusalem, worshipping the God, listening to his law, obeying its precepts. The way they live in there, it's weird. (laughs) It's different from how we live out here. But, But there's something attractive about it. There's something distinctive about it, and I want in. And it's the same for the mission of the church. The world is meant to look in on the church and say the way they live their lives in there, the way they forgive those who hurt them, the way they love their enemies, the way they spend time listening to little kids and take time visiting oldies, the way they keep sex for marriage, the way they're generous with their money, the way they're patient with the socially awkward, uh, the, the way they live in there, it, it's weird. It's different from how we do things out here, but there's something about it. I can't put my finger on it. It's good. It's good. And, and I want in. Right? That's God's design for the mission of his church. There's a great scene in C.S. Lewis's uh, book and now movie, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, perhaps you know it, where uh, the Pevency uh, kids are in Narnia, where it's always winter uh, and never Christmas uh, and the snow covers the ground and the skies are grey and it's icy cold and it's the middle of winter Uh, and as they're walking through the Pevency kids with the beavers and also the wicked white witch who has caused this always winter never Christmas with her dwarf, a henchman uh, they both groups both notice the same thing. They notice that the, the, the clouds part and blue sky appears, that the sun, sun starts to shine and the snow starts to melt. The little patches of green grass grow up amongst the snow uh, and the, the, the flowers start to bud and the birds start to sing and the rivers are starting to flow. Uh, and the dwarf says to the wicked white witch, what's going on? Uh, your, your winter is thawing. And the witch who knows better says, no, this, this is no thaw, I tell you. This is spring. This is Aslan's doing. Aslan is on the move. And you see, that's a beautiful picture of what God is doing in our old, broken, dark, cold world as he brings people to Jesus, the living stone, and builds them up into his church, his temple, his new humanity. He's making little pockets of green, little pockets of life in the world, and that's the church. And the mission for the church as foreigners and exiles, is to abstain from sinful desires, 1 Peter 2.11, and live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he comes to visit us. So here's my question for you, Port Macquarie, Presbyterian Church. How many unbelievers see the insides of your life together? How many people see the insides of your relationship with other Christians? Uh, Too often it's easy for us to live in a kind of Christian ghetto where our relationships with Christians are hermetically sealed from our relationships with non-Christians. We have a set of church friends and a set of sports clubs friends, a set of church friends and a set of work friends. Uh, Peter assumes that we'll be living such good lives among those who don't know the Lord so that they'll see our good deeds. So how visible is your church life and if it's not very visible how can you open it up maybe I can put it like this the more non-Christian people who see the inside of your church life not just on Sunday mornings i mean but the insides of how you relate together as Christian brothers and sisters during the week the more non-Christian people who can see that the better because God's design for the mission of his church is that the life of his people will demonstrate how great he is It can start with really simple things. Uh, When our son Noah there was born 13 years ago, I was teaching in a high school. uh, And we were part of a church that had this fantastic meals roster. Uh, And so they organised this roster as soon as he was born. And for about four weeks, I think it was, we did not cook a meal because they provided for us. I'm not saying every church has to do that, but it was just outstanding, right? And so I'd turn up at work every day with these beautiful home-cooked meals. And my colleague looked across knowing that we just had a baby. And after about three weeks of this, she says to me, you have an amazing wife. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, yes, that's true. (laughs) But she hasn't cooked any of these. And I saw her jaw drop because she'd never experienced anything like it. And I said, this is just kind of normal in our church. People have a baby, we make food for them. That's how it goes. People get sick, we make food for them. And she was astounded so simple. And yet, the good deeds of God's people bearing witness to the good work that God has done in their lives. So, do you want to be start, part of something big? Do you want to be right at the center of the action? <laughs> Don't opt out of the church or its life and mission. No, throw yourself in. Because God is building his church, his new temple, his most magnificent building project. It's his new humanity. It's the means that God has chosen to display his glory in the world. And because it's God's great building project, we can be sure that God will complete it. Some people, when I talk like this, start to get nervous. They say, but yeah, if we show people the insides of our church life, they're going to see our sin as well, aren't they? (laughs) They're going to see the way that we bicker with each other. They're going to see the way that we fail. And that's true. They will but they'll also see what you do with your sin. They'll also see how you bring it to the foot of the cross and have yourself washed with the blood of Jesus, which more than anything they need to see, so that they can turn and have their sin washed as well. When you come to the very end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, do you remember the vision that we get there, a vision of a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God? And it's described in terms that are meant to make us remember the temple of God in the Old Testament. The dimensions are in fact exactly the same as the dimensions of Solomon's temple, except much bigger, same proportions, much bigger dimensions. And it's been built with the names of the sons of Israel on its gates and the names of the 12 apostles as its foundations. It's a new temple, except it's really just a picture of what? Of the church, of God's church, in all its glory. Once God has completed his work, coming down out of heaven from God, the new Jerusalem, and apart from God himself seated on the throne, that building is the most magnificent site. God's people perfected in their glory. You see, the church may look small and weak and insignificant, but in fact it's where you want to be. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't opt out throw yourself in I'm going to pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus that though we were in darkness you've brought us into your marvellous light that though we were not a people you have made us your very own people your treasured possession and so we pray Heavenly Father that you would more and more make us people who declare your praises and who live good lives in the world that those who don't yet know you as their Heavenly Father might see our lives and hear our praises and be drawn to you. And we pray it for your glory. Amen.